Good morning. It is so good to be with you today. My name is Joel Kurz, and uh, if you're a visitor here, uh, usually Pastor Chris is preaching, from my, my understanding, and I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. I uh, get to visit with you guys today and, and uh, have the opportunity to, to bring God's Word here. I pastor a church in Baltimore City called the Garden Church, and uh, we're in inner city Baltimore. And then out of our church, we have a ministry called One Hope, uh, seeking to plant churches in the inner city communities. And uh, so this year we've been able to get behind some guys and uh, give some grants and some training and support. So be praying for us as we seek to uh, take God's word to hard places in our cities and in our communities. Um, pastor Chris, thank you for the invitation. Uh, I go way back with your pastor uh, prior to his, his time at Catonsville Baptist Church in Maryland. I think I met you when you were on your way to Maryland or on your way to Catonsville, I should say. And uh, we got to know each other, comrades in ministry, sister churches, uh, for so many years. And uh, so it's just so good to catch up with your pastor and also be with you guys. So thank you for having me. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is where we will be today. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And, you know, I got to do it like I do back home. When you're there, say amen. amen. All right. Uh, I am used to amen, so feel free if I say something that you agree with. Feel free to say amen. Amen? amen. There we go. Um, let's stand once again for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out from them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I want to preach to you this morning from this text, and I'm going to title my sermon, Captivated by Christ. Let's pray together and ask him for, 
for his help. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We ask, God, that you would speak to us now. I pray that you would use me as I speak, that I would speak with clarity your truths, not merely my ideas, that you would open our hearts to shape us and to fashion us according to the likeness of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Adoniram Judson was a young man who had every opportunity before him. He came from a well-to-do family. He was well-educated. But Adoniram Judson had heard of the lost in other parts of the globe. People who had no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ, in particular India, and then eventually it would be Burma for Adoniram. So Adoniram began to make plans to go to this part of the world which would be very difficult. He began raising support, raising money, people praying for him. He would become the first missionary uh, sent out from America. As he's preparing, however, Adoniram encountered a massive problem. He fell in love. He fell in love with a young woman named Anne. Anne also had every opportunity before her. And this, this was a problem because back in these days, you would get on a boat and travel for three months at sea, possibly die before you get there. And once you're there, the likelihood of ever coming back was slim. Would Anne go with him to Burma? Would her father allow her to marry Adoniram? Great questions, aren't they? Well, he decided, let's go ahead and try this out. Let's see if her father would allow me to marry his daughter and take her away to Burma. So Adoniram sat down and he wrote a letter to Anne's father asking for Anne's hand in marriage. Let me read to you that letter. I have to now ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Well, her father said yes. And they boarded a ship, nearly died at sea, and they would spend the rest of their life taking the gospel to the lost in Burma. And it was hard. While Adoniram was being tortured with his 
feet tied up above his head for extended periods of time over a mosquito-infested swamp. Anne would get sick, and she would die. They buried their children in Burma. They gave their all to this cause. And by the way, uh, fast forward a couple hundred years, we had somebody in our church who pastors a church in Atlanta. They have a Burmese congregation in their church, out of their church, uh, and the guy that started that, he's in his 90s, uh, the guy that started that congregation, his, his salvation testimony goes back to his great, 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 great something or other grandfather who was led to Christ by Adoniram Judson. Now, Adoniram wouldn't have known that at the time, would he? And so here's the question I want to ask is, with someone like Adoniram and Anne, what was it that motivated them? What was it that fueled this desire and then decision to get on a boat and live a life of really suffering for the cause of Christ, for the sake of the lost, and for the glory of Jesus? Our temptation is to live for ourselves. Our temptation is to live our lives as comfortable as possible, to acquire as much as possible. Worst case scenario, to end up just living a selfish life. Or possibly to ignore the needs of others. Or even worse, to take advantage of others for our own benefit. Or perhaps even worse than that, to see Jesus merely as a means of getting what I want, but not the goal. To see Jesus as a means to my treasure, but not my treasure itself. In our text this morning, in verse 10, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says to them, from now on, you're going to be catching men. I'm changing the trajectory of your life. Jesus came preaching this good news of the kingdom. And now he is calling regular people like me and you to live their lives on mission for Jesus Christ. And while many of us will not be missionaries going to other parts of the globe, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 given by Jesus applies to all of us wherever we're at. To make disciples of Jesus Christ, meaning we too, not just these men in the passage, not just Adoniram Judson, but you and I are part of this great story of catching men for Christ. And so if you are a Christian, I want you to understand that you're part of this larger narrative. And so here's my goal for this morning. I, I, I hope to drive us toward mission. And that could be supporting missionaries, that could be sending missionaries, or it could be the mission that you have with your own uh, friends and family members and neighbors right here in Avon Park. To drive us toward evangelism. To drive us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the lost. But how do we do that? I, I hope to motivate you this morning, not with guilt or shame, I hope to motivate you this morning in the same way that I believe these disciples were motivated, and that is through being captivated by Jesus. 
I don't want to lift up man today. I want to lift up Christ today. I don't want us to be motivated by the glory of man today. I want us to behold Jesus and be motivated by his glory. Are you with me? So that's our goal, and I want to do it in this fashion. I want to walk through this text, and I want to show you these four truths of Jesus that are captivating. Number one, Jesus is commanding. Jesus is commanding. Let me set the stage for you as we study this passage this morning. We're here at the Sea of Galilee or Gennesaret, and the crowd is pressing in on him. It's as if Jesus has been pushed by the crowds all the way to the lake, and he's looking around, and there's no other place to go. I think of like 1960s Beatle hysteria, maybe, where everybody's pressing in on the celebrity. And at this point, Jesus has a little bit of celebrity status. And certainly these disciples would have heard of him. Perhaps they were part of these crowds at times listening to Jesus. So as Jesus is pressed up to the water, in verse 2, what we see is that Jesus turns and he sees two boats sitting there on the shore. One of the boats is owned by a man named Simon Peter. We get to know him later in the story, don't we? So Jesus looks at Simon, he's like, hey, let's get in your boat, let's go on out. So Jesus goes out on the lake, and, and it's as if he makes a pulpit on water, and he preaches to the people from the lake. Now, after the preaching is finished, he's hungry. And Jesus looks at Peter, and he says, hey, let's go for a catch. Let's go out for a catch. Now, let me remind you that in verse 2, as Jesus sees these boats, they are cleaning their nets. They're washing their nets. What that means is that the disciples have been out all night long fishing, which was the prime time to catch fish on the Sea of Galilee. They had caught nothing, we're told, in verse 2. They are washing their nets. The story begins with failure. They've caught nothing. And in this day and age, if you don't catch fish that night, it's possible you don't have any savings in the bank account. You catch your fish, you sell your fish for the day, and then you eat. To not catch anything all night long is a problem. Jesus now is in the boat, and he says, hey, let's go fishing. Let me remind you, Jesus was not a professional fisherman. These guys were. Jesus was a carpenter by trade. They must have looked at Jesus like he was crazy. This is the worst time of day to go fishing. We just finished washing the nets. We caught nothing all night long. And you're telling us, let's go out for a catch? A couple years ago, my Honda Accord passed away. I was driving down the road, and it just kind of zonked out. It was one of those deaths where, I mean, it, when it turns off, you just know it's done right? I had it towed to a garage, and I spent about $150 for them to tell me the car was dead. It was done. So I call up Brian, who's part of our church, and I say, hey, my car's broke down. I'm at this garage. Can you come pick me up? And Brian says, have you tried the igni ignition? And that's just kind of, Brian is just that kind of guy. And I'm like, bro, 
I actually don't feel like joking right now. Just come and pick me up. We tried the ignition. I have to ha believe that there was a little bit of that feeling in Peter when Jesus said, let's go out for a catch. Have you tried the ignition? Are you serious? We've been trying to catch fish all night long. And now here we are in the morning after we just cleaned our nets and you're going to say, have you tried the ignition? Have you tried letting down the nets? Let's go get some fish. Look at verse 3, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon Peter's. He asked him to put out a little from the land. He sat down, taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now look at Simon's response in verse 5. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. He's pushing back a little bit, isn't he? Master, you've got to understand something. We've been out here trying this all night long. We're not stupid. We've caught nothing. But look at his next words. There's not a period there. He continues. He says, but at your word. I love that phrase. Jesus, you don't know what we've been doing all night. You don't know the toil that we've put in. You don't know how we have tried to catch fish. We've caught nothing. But at your word. This is childlike trust. Jesus, you don't know how tired I am, but at your word. Jesus, you don't know how weary I am, but at your word. Jesus, you don't know how much shame I have, but at your word. Jesus, you don't know how much guilt I am under, but at your word. All who are tired, all who are thirsty, all who are weary, come to Jesus Christ and find rest and find forgiveness and find righteousness and find life and it doesn't make sense. I've been trying that. I've been toiling toward that end. And I'm, I'm filled with shame. The guilt is compounding. It doesn't make sense. But at your word, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to know to become a Christian is childlike trust. I don't mean that there is no logic. I don't mean that, that it is unverified. I, I, I don't mean that, that we are simplistic in our faith. But what I mean is that when Jesus speaks, and when Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are tired of trying to make yourself righteous, all who are failures, all who have messed up, all who are broken, all who cannot stand before God on your own two feet, come to me and I will represent you. My blood is sufficient to forgive your sins, cleanse you of all unrighteousness, and fill you with my own righteousness. At your word. At your word. That's what we see here. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. He rose again from the dead. And all who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ are forgiven of their sins now and one day will be freed from even the presence of sin. Do you believe that? At your word. At your word, Jesus. So back to our text. 
Let's see their catch. Verse 6. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. And their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. The, the scripture sometimes is written in such an anticlimactic way, isn't it? It's just so straightforward. It just tells you exactly what happened. But man, think about this. They were out all night long. They caught nothing. Jesus is with them. Let's go fish. I don't know. We've been toiling all night. We caught nothing. At your word, let's do it. As soon as they let down the nets, there is so much fish that comes in from those nets. They call the second boat out. They're loading up fish in both boats, and both boats begin to sink. I don't know how many fish that is, but it's a lot. It's a lot of fish. Scholars say it's months and months worth of income if they could get out there and sell all this fish. An absolute miracle. Now, what's the difference? What, what changed? Did they use new bait? Did they change their nets? Were they different fishermen? No, all of that was the same. What changed was the presence of Christ. You see, we worry in our toil. We are so filled with anxiety about what might come, about how this thing might turn out, about how your child might end up, how your grandchild might end up, how things are going to end, whether or not we're going to have enough money to pay the bills. We worry about the big things in life and we worry about the small things in life. And I just want to encourage you this morning and remind you that Jesus can do more in 10 minutes that his disciples could do in 10 hours. And that's the same in your life. We have a Christ who is in command. It's as if his very command calls every single fish in Gennesaret to jump into their nets and into their boats. So why do we spend so much time in our worries? Why do we spend so much time in our anxieties. Jesus has the power of command. Now, check this out. Romans 8.28 tells us that in God's sovereignty, God's command in Christ works for your good. Meaning even the bad things are not really bad. Even the things that don't work out aren't really things that don't work out. Because God in some fashion is taking the good in your life and the bad in your life, the joys and the suffering, and working together for your good and for His glory. With Jesus' command, guilt is gone. With Jesus' command, shame flees. With Jesus' commands, even our problems work together for our good. And so cast your cares on Jesus, amen? For he cares for you. So our first point is this. I want you to grab this from the text. Jesus is commanding. Secondly, he's not just commanding, but he's commanding for you who are in Christ. For your good. That takes me to my second point. 
Jesus is comforting. Jesus is comforting. Look at Peter's first response. After this big catch in verse 8, everybody's like, wow, that's amazing. They are marveling at the catch. But, there's a but there, Peter is, is has, having a little different kind of response than everybody else. Verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at his knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The word Lord there in verse 8 is a step up from his title Master in verse 2. It's almost as if as this story is unraveling before Peter, the awareness of Christ's identity has skyrocketed. Why the horror? Why is Peter not jumping up and down for joy? Why is Peter not just, oh my goodness, and grabbing Jesus and hugging him and saying, you are the best? Why the horror? In verse 9, for he and all who were, were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish. Isn't that interesting? That this great miracle... This great astonishment actually drew out a sense of, I've got to get away from you. And Peter, you've got to get away from me. Why? Why is that? I'll use a, an analogy to explain. I, we have a, a, a Nike uh, outlet store in the Baltimore area, which is not good for the number of times I ask my wife if I can buy, buy some shoes, right? So I was walking into the Nike outlet store, and I was not planning to buy shoes, all right? I told my wife that. I wasn't even planning on it when I walked in. <laughs> and, uh, but, but when I walked in, you know, I saw this pair of shoes, and I picked them up, and I tried them on. And you know how you get that new crisp white on a brand new pair of shoes? And you look at the shoes that you walked in with and you thought they were white. And now that you're in the store, you're looking at the new pair of shoes and you're looking at your old pair of shoes and you think to yourself, like, I can't even put those back on. <laughs> now here's the crazy thing. As I'm walking into the Nike outlet store, I was pretty satisfied with the shoes I had on my feet. They seemed pretty clean. But now that I have encountered what is truly clean, that which I had on my feet looks filthy. You see where I'm going with this? You see, Peter, perhaps, thought of himself as a pretty good guy. You know, he would have likely been a religious man. He was working a job. He wasn't like these robbers out there. These thieves that are not working and that are just harming people and violent and taking people's money. No, he's an honest man working an honest job, doing pretty well. I believe we could probably understand Peter as somewhat self-righteous. But now what happens is this. Peter comes into the presence of that which is truly clean and he discovers filth in himself. 
It's not until we come into the presence of the powerful that we understand our own weakness. It's not until we come into the presence of the holy that we understand that we are a sinner. And so this is that crisis moment. And I believe that everybody coming to Christ in some fashion has a crisis moment. Maybe you don't remember a crisis moment, and that's okay. But there must be some sense of crisis in which we realize that I am not okay. I cannot stand before God in my own righteousness. And in this crisis moment, Peter's first response, and perhaps it was your own first response, when you came to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, our first response can be a sense of, I can't be in the presence of God. I can't draw near to God. Why? Because I'm filthy. Because I'm a sinner. And He is clean. And He is holy. But look at Jesus' response in verse 10. End of verse 10. Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. Let's just pause right there. Do not be afraid. Now, if you were to skip over a little bit in the Gospel of Luke, we could contrast this with those who come to Jesus who are the self-righteous, and they say, Lord, Lord, look what we've done in your name. We've cast out demons. We've done this. We've done that. We've helped people. I've served in, my ch in the church my whole life. I've been a good person. I've tithed my money. I've given. I've been a good father, a good grandfather. Look at all of these wonderful things. Look how I've helped you in, in my life. And Jesus says to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Think about this. Look at the difference. Peter's response versus the self-righteous. Peter's response is, I have no right to be in your presence. I have nothing on which to stand. I must depart from you, or you, you must depart from me, or I must depart from you. I can't be near you. Whereas the self-righteous say, oh, look what I've done for you. The difference in response to the self-righteous, Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. To the person who understands their own sinfulness, Jesus says, do not be afraid. He's a wonderful Savior. He's a wonderful Savior. It's when the holy came down to die for a wretch like me. How is this possible that we sing it in the old hymn, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. When Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, he's talking to the self-righteous, and I will give you rest. You need not any longer strive for your own righteous standing before God. And those who have hit that crisis moment, how can I ever be in the presence of God with such sin? He's calling us to come to Him. And we will find rest in Him. As John Newton said, as he was in his dying years, his memory was leaving him. Uh, and, and, and he said, I don't, don't remember much, but I remember these two things. Number one, I am a great sinner. And number two, Christ is a great Savior. 
As Richard Sibbs once said, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in me. Jesus is commanding saints, and Jesus is, in the gospel, comforting because of his work on the cross on our behalf. Thirdly, what we see here is that Jesus is commissioning. He's giving us a job. He's sending us out. He's commissioning. Now, getting a job, there's a a kind of dignity that comes along with that. uh, The the TV show, All Creatures Great and Small, uh, you have this uh, veterinarian who is has made some mistakes, and he thinks he's going to get fired, and the following morning, uh, his boss looks at him, and he says, when can you be ready for work? And all of a sudden, he gets this smile on his face. Why? It's because receiving that job said something about his own dignity and value and worth. You see, Jesus, in redeeming us, giving us his righteousness, doesn't stop there, but he then gives us a job. He commissions us. And that itself is comforting. It's as if we could put it like this. Our conviction of our sin and of who Jesus is is wrapped up in gospel comfort. And that gospel comfort leads to a call. It leads to a commission. And so that's what Jesus says next in verse 10. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. That word catch in verse 10 is slightly different in the original language than the word catch in verse 4 and verse 9. The word catch in verse 4 and verse 9 refer to the kind of catching that you would do if you're hunting. Hunting prey. The word in verse 10 means catching for life. It's as if he's Taking, you know, this is kind of like your job, but not really. Previously, you were all about hunting fish as prey. Now I'm uh, remaking your job, giving you a new commission, and you are going to be catching men for life. That means rescuing one from the depths of sin and misery that they have been plunged into and bringing them to life. Now, certainly, we are not the rescuers. There is only one rescuer. But the rescuing happens through the means of God's people proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's actually included us in His redemptive plan. And as the gospel of Jesus Christ is spoken, the picture is that people are being caught for life. They're being rescued out of death. Long my uh, imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose and I went forth and I followed Thee. This is the work of Christian evangelism. To see souls caught for life. Now, how did this turn out with these fishermen? Well, let's think about it. Simon Peter went on to preach to 3,000 in the book of Acts. Start churches. 
James went on to boldly give his life as one of the first to die for Jesus by the sword. Gave his all for Jesus. His brother John would go on to pastor in Ephesus and write five books included in the New Testament. John would disciple Polycarp and Polycarp would disciple Arrhenius and Arrhenius would disciple Hippolytus of Rome and Hippolytus would disciple Origen of North Africa, meaning within just a couple generations because of these fishermen, because of their influence, the entire known world had heard of Jesus Christ. And that influence is still being played out today in Avon Park, Florida. Through you. Through your witness. At your job. In your homes. Through the testimony of this church proclaimed every Sunday and throughout the week. As you think of your job, as you think of the community around you, how you build your lives, how you spend your money, how you disciple your kids or your grandkids, how you love your neighbors. The story continues. One application we could just simply ask ourselves is this, who is it that I'm currently discipling and reaching out to with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's continue to boldly take this gospel forward to those who need to know Jesus. But as we do, and I'll close with this, as we do, what is the goal? What is the goal of Christian mission? Is it to change the community? Is it to see Avon Park just simply become a better place where Christian values are embraced publicly? What's the goal of our evangelism? What is the goal of Christian mission? Is it merely to see lives changed? To see people walk away from addictions or or bad behaviors? Is it to see your church grow and, and see a lot of people filling this sanctuary? What is the goal? The goal is that we might see Jesus. The goal is that we might see Jesus. My fourth point as we close is this. Jesus is captivating. He's captivating. Now I get that's also my title and in preaching you're not supposed to use your title as one of your points so forgive me on that. But I'm summarizing here. Jesus is captivating. You might know the parable of the servant who found a hidden treasure buried in a field. And what does he do? He doesn't own the field. He's a mere servant. So he reburies the treasure and he goes home and he sells everything that he has. He puts his car on Facebook Marketplace and he puts a for sale sign out front of his house and he's selling his wife's jewelry and her clothing. She's like, what are you doing? And he sells everything that they have. And then he takes all of that money and with that money he buys the field. And with the field, he gets the treasure of great price worth more than you can imagine. Don't you understand that Jesus is the treasure of great price? Don't you understand that parable is pointing to Christ? That Jesus is worth us 
Selling everything that we have. And it may not be literal in your life. It's meant to call us to, to, to using, to stewarding all that God has given us for His glory. But my point is this. Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. When we deny our sinful temptation and we sacrifice that fleshly desire, even though it hurts and is, is painful to live in godliness, Jesus is worth, worth it. When we sacrifice our comfort so that Christ might be known, Jesus is worth it. When we get into that awkward situation where we awkwardly open up our mouths and say, okay, here we go, I'm going to tell them about Jesus, and we tell somebody about Jesus Christ and call them to consider Christ, He is worth it. He is the treasure of great price. Let's back up in our text here in verse 11. They, they get these two boatloads of fish worth a lot of money is what we've determined so far. As the boats are coming to the shore, I would imagine, you would just assume, I guess, that they would be celebrating, that there would be shouts of victory and, and just throwing fish up into the air and, and so happy and popping bottles of champagne or sparkling grape juice since we're Baptists and, and just having a wonderful party, looking forward to all of the, the, the money that they're able to. As they're coming to the shore, what does it say? It says, and when they brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Meaning, the picture we actually get is almost somber. Here they come. And their gaze is fixed on Jesus. Not on the fish. Not on the fish. You see, being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not just simply about the fish. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not just simply about what we can get from Jesus. What Jesus will lead us to in this world. You see, money fades Clothes wear out. Vacations come to an end. Fish rot. But Jesus is forever. What testifies to the goodness of Jesus Christ is not merely when we praise Him in the good times, it's when we praise Him in the bad times. As with, with Job, as the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If we come to Jesus merely for what we can get from Jesus, well then Jesus is merely a means to our treasure. But He's not our treasure. Are you with me? The text tells us here that they left everything behind. Everything. To Boatloads of fish. They left it behind because Christ is the pearl of great price. Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the end. Jesus is not merely a road to our treasure. He is 
the destination. We could ask Peter here, knowing how Peter then lived his life, Peter, is Jesus captivating enough? Is Jesus worth it? And Peter showed that Jesus was worth everything as he lived a life for Christ, often in prison, eventually crucified upside down in his death. Jesus is worth it. How about James? James, is Jesus worth it? James showed us with his life, Jesus is worth it as he gave his life so quickly for the cause of Jesus Christ. John, is Jesus worth it? John showed us the love that he had for Christ, not merely with words, but as he lived a life boldly proclaiming Christ, got him banished. Polycarp, one of John's disciples, who gave his own life for Jesus, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth everything you are? Polycarp's testimony as he's thrown into the Colosseum and he's taunted and he's, he's threatened with lions and he's threatened with beasts and he's threatened with fire. Turn from Christ. Renounce Christ and you can live. Polycarp says, look, I've followed, I, I've loved Jesus. Jesus has been good to me for 86 years. I could never renounce him now. Why would I forget him now? He is worth it unto death. The goal of our salvation is the glory of Christ. All of history is leading us to this moment in which we seek Christ and forever we worship Christ. You know, heaven is described as a wonderful place where there are gates of pearl and streets of gold and we gather together in our mansions. But when we get to heaven, do you think that we're going to just be in awe first by the pearly gates? Wow, look how beautiful these gates are. And you guys that are like construction guys looking at the hinges, how did they do this? Are we going to be in awe of the, the streets of gold? No, absolutely not. You see, I believe the picture there is this. The most valuable thing we have here on earth, such as pearls or, or gold, that's merely what we pave our streets with there. Why? Because there is a glory far beyond anything you can comprehend in this world. Our gaze eternally will be fixed on Jesus. Together with Peter, James, John, all of God's people forever crying out this prayer, worshiping this, uh, this risen Bloodied Savior, forever bearing the marks of our redemption, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard them saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for the fact that Christ is captivating 
that we are driven even into our service to you, our holiness, our evangelism, not simply out of law, but because we have beheld the glory of Christ. Father, I pray that you would use us, your people, for your glory and for for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.